Hi, everybody. It's Ben. Uh, we are pleased to present our next episode. Uh, but one little production note, we uh, recorded this in uh, an empty office and we had to share a microphone. So the audio quality is not quite up to what we would like it to be. We are still working on finding a, a better uh, acoustic environment for the for the shows. But for the time being, we just ask you to indulge us as we uh, work through these little technical issues um, as this pandemic is hopefully winding down. I guess we'll see. Uh, but you may you may hear it uh, both being a little um, echoey and also the uh, microphone overloads at a couple points. So apologize for that. Please bear with us. Like I said, we're we're working on uh, getting a, a better, more acoustically shielded environment with less echo and uh, better sound quality. So hopefully we'll have that to you soon. And in the meantime, um, enjoy. Welcome to a Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers, with your hosts Ben Siders and Kurt Damon. And welcome back to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, the podcast that asks interesting questions that don't have any answers with your host, Ben Siders, that's me. And the other guy is, as always, Kurt Damon. That's Kurt, that's the captain of the Enterprise. We are intellectual property lawyers and certified geeks practicing law in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find me, Ben, on Twitter, at Benjamin Siders, and you can find Kirk at KirkDMN. You can follow this podcast on Twitter, at LGGPod. Um, I had originally in our show notes here some housekeeping notes about our new website, but we've only got 50 minutes to record, and we've got a lot to cover. So I think I'll skip <laughs> that. I'll do a separate little uh, blurb after this episode to talk about our new website, what we're doing with that. But the short, uh, the short Cliff Notes version is, we have a new website. Go check it out. There are more changes yet to come, but I'll kind of summarize that in, a, in sort of a, a short uh, bonus material after this episode. Um, along with some other things. One other thing I want to mention really quick, a uh, shout-out to Welp Magazine that named this podcast one of their top 20 copyright podcasts. So we appreciate uh, that recognition. We also agree that we are a top 20. I'd say we're even top five. <laughs> <laughs> you don't wonder how many, copy- out to me, how many copyright law podcasts are there, and there actually are quite a lot. So I think they got all 20 of them. On the list. <laughs> I yeah. think there's more than that, actually. Anyway, so, so thank you, Welp. Uh, we put that on our website as well. They actually announced this back in March, but since, once again, my auto-forwarding rule on our email got turned off for some reason, <laughs> Google, we don't know what you're doing. Uh, I turned it back on, but I found that, and we have, uh, we have since acknowledged our recognition, so we appreciate that. Today's episode is about the great TSR trademark war of <laughs> 2021, <laughs> believe it or not. Um, thanks to uh, Chris D., a high school friend of mine, whose last name I will admit to protect his anonymity, uh, and also uh, infamous uh, listener Ed from Grand Rapids, uh, both of whom independently suggested this topic to us almost simultaneously on the same day. If you haven't heard, there's been a fight which uh, might still be ongoing, we think it's winding down now, about who owns the rights to the TSR trademark. I'm, I'm shocked anybody cares at this point, but um, there has been drama. So let's, uh, let's, let's, let's start at the beginning, I guess. We'll briefly go through sort of... There's, okay, so there's three TSRs. Yeah, what, let's start off with what is TSR to yes. begin with. For anyone who doesn't know TSR, TSR is the original publisher of Dungeons & Dragons. Um, so if we're going to jump back to the 1980s, uh, you know, everybody knew TSR. It was sort of the role-playing company. Um, and it really was kind of the role-playing Absolutely. company. I mean, it was definitely the biggest. Um, and they published Dungeons and Dragons. And they published Dungeons that and Dragons. Was the most famous property yeah. of the time. And, and I think the other thing we should put it in there is the other thing that's definitely associated, you know, with it is the two founders of TSR is Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson. Yep. I think most people also see Gary Gygax very strongly yeah. in TSR. because Dave kind of left, I think. And we, we did an episode on, like, the disputes between those two about yeah. the royalty streams and what happened. There's an internet rumor that, like, the reason D&D 2 is called Advanced Dungeons & Dragons was to 
to like not have to pay royalties to artists, and we should look into that one at some point. I don't know yeah. if that's true or not, but there were a lot of dramatic disputes in the 80s between the two of them about uh, royalties, access to the IP, things like that. Yeah, so I think that you know what we really are talking about is in conjunction with the 80s, we have probably the, you know, the biggest, the most successful role-playing company. One argument could argue TSR created role-playing. I mean, I think there's a reasonable thing behind that. Yeah. Um, but that's in the 80s. Yeah. And those, those disputes, again, weren't really about the trademarks. Uh, but that said, TSR did own a bunch of trademarks at the time. So let's go through real quick what exactly trademarks are. So, because I think this is something where people, you know, people come to us and say things like, I need to trademark my book. I need to trademark my, my, my screenplay. I need to trademark my movie. No, no, no. Those are copyrights. Those are copyrights. What you trademark is your branding. Yeah. And so, but we have two brands here. We have TSR and we have Dungeons & Dragons. These are two different brands. Yep. There's two different brands here. And that's not surprising. It's common that, you know, a lot of things you may have multiple brands. You may McDonald's have brand. and Big Mac. Two yeah, different brands. Exactly. Perfect example. Um, we have an association oftentimes with sort of the company or the product, like a product line as a whole. You have a brand associated with an individual. And again, one of the things you bump into is it's if you get into people and they're like, oh, I know all about branding, but I know nothing about trademarks. Well, the two things are, you know, it's really related. Like you have to have, you know, sort of both of them be related. The real key to trademarks is it basically grants you, if you get a trademark, the, the trademark right grants you the right to sort of use the mark exclusively for the goods and services that you are selling underneath the mark. Yep. The real and key, in the region where you're selling. And in the region where you're selling, depending on exactly what it is. There are really three different kinds of, of trademarks that exist out there. The first of these is what's called common law trademarks. This is by the simple act of, of selling something, which is out there, um, you gain a common law trademark. The key to a common law trademark is that a common law trademark is something that because you have sold goods or services in commerce associated with this particular mark, you get rights to it where you sold it, where there's a likelihood of confusion. These all arise under state law. Arise under state, state law. Lines, automatically. The other thing that's interesting about it, and you can kind of look at these in some respects, while it's a right of the owner of the trademark, it's almost like a consumer protection law. Yeah, that's the reason we have it. Yeah, because basically what we're telling people is, hey, you, you don't want to be confused about what products you're buying. If you think you are buying a Big Mac, you expect it to be a very specific burger. Yes. Um, you don't expect to get, you know, a flame-grilled single burger with lettuce, tomato, and onion on it. That, that's not a Big Mac. You know, you need your, you know, special sauce, Thousand Island dressing. Thousand Island dressing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, something so along those lines. You know, that's what you expect from, from, a, from a Big Mac. So that's the idea of common law rights. There's then been formalization of the idea of common law rights through registration schemes. You can register trademarks through states. As we said, common law rights are state rights. You can also choose to register your trademarks through states. I think every state, I think, has yep. some kind of trademark regime, usually through the Secretary of State's office, uh, with varying levels of sophistication. Yeah, for the, I think believe every state has some form of state registration. Now, the issue with it is, is some states basically copy the federal law, we're going to talk about it in a minute. Some states kind of write their own law. So there are states where state trademarks can be more powerful, actually, than federal trademarks. There are states where essentially they're the same. Um, there's no difference between having it. It's just the geographic scope of what it is. With that, obviously, the third form of registration is a federal registration, which is where you federally register your mark with the United States Patent and Trademark Office. This is kind of considered, I guess you can look at and say, the Rolls-Royce of, you know, a, a trademark, uh, because this is the broadest registration. It's no longer necessarily based so much as where you use it. It is a federal registration. It covers the United States and all, you know, things under the jurisdiction of the United States. 
Um, but that's what you have as sort of rights in there. There's a registration process you go through both for state registration and for federal registration. You have to file an application. You got to tell them what the mark is, what goods and services you're claiming the mark on, uh, when you started using it. Except with the federal government, you can say, I haven't started to use it yet, but I really mean to. Yeah, and that's what's called intent to use or ITU application. Yes. An intent to use application is the way you go to the federal government and say, I want to use this mark in the future and I want to basically preserve my rights before I invest in it. So give me the mark or get me most of the way through the process and determine that I'm entitled to get the mark and then give me the mark when I actually use it. Another important thing to understand here is that uh, the rights to trademarks is based on a, a priority and time system. Whoever is first to use it has superior rights to whoever comes later. So if I start using a trademark in, say, here, St. Louis, on some scope of goods, and then somebody else starts using the exact same mark in Orlando, Florida, that's fine. We're not really stepping on each other. We're not overlapping geographically. We can both do that. Nobody in Orlando is going to be confused that it's really me. But if I try to move into Orlando, now there's a problem, and the person who was in Orlando first gets priority. The federal registration system changes that a little bit in that once you file your trademark, if you get it through the process to registration, you get nationwide priority backdated to your filing date of the application. So if I file one today, I get the mark issued in two years. As of today's date, I can go in anywhere and kick out anybody who came in afterwards for the most sort part. Of. For the most and there, part. There's some limitations on that, yeah. and that's the other thing to keep in mind about this, and I think it's a very important thing to keep straight. When we talk about a trademark, we are talking about that mark used with the goods and services. The state registrations and the federal registrations are trademark registrations. They are not, not the rights actually the rights themselves. And that's a really important thing to keep in mind. Because you can look at it and say, well, I have a federal registration. Just because you have a federal registration does not necessarily mean you have a federal trademark. Yeah, the idea of a federal trademark doesn't really exist. We say yeah. that sometimes in shorthand. What we really mean is a federal registration to a state trademark, and that, that will not operate to trump somebody who came before. So if I file today and somebody's already using the same mark somewhere, I can't go kick them out. They were there first. Now, they can't move into my area either. Yeah, usually the way they treat the sort of first in time is whoever uses first or files first, based upon the first of those two things you yes. did. <laughs> um, so if somebody files and then uses, they get their filing date. If somebody uses, then files, they get their, use, their using yeah. date. So TSR had a bunch of trademarks uh, from back in the 80s. Uh, the main one we're going to talk about... Federal registrations. Federal registrations. When we say they had trademarks, we mean federal registrations of state marks, probably arising under Wisconsin law, because I think they were from Lake Geneva, Wisconsin? Right. Yeah, I, I, don't know. I used to live in Wisconsin, I, I don't, I don't, but I don't know geography that well. Um, anyway, uh, so they had a, a number of marks. One of them is what we call a word mark. It's just the letters TSR in any form or fashion covered. Also, a number of design marks, was, which maybe we'll put some in the in the show notes, and you'll recognize them when you see them. They're, they're iconic. They're the TSI lo- TSR logo. Yeah, the logos that you remember. You've seen these, used to them. Uh, TSR's uh, extensive legal drama was mercifully put out by <laughs> in the 1990s when Wizards of the Coast uh, bought them. I think they were financially struggling then. The internet was a uh, challenge to them and many other industries. Uh, but Wizards of the Coast bought them out uh, and discontinued use of the TSR brand and by the time that D&D 3rd Edition came out, it was published under uh, the Wizards of the Coast brand name. In fact, I've got, I've got my book right here. Right He's looking at it right now. You can't, there you, go. You, can't, you can hear the trademark, Wizards of the Coast, in my monster manual here in my office. So, uh, so Wizards of the Coast dropped the TSR trademarks. And one other aspect of federal registration we should mention 
You have to renew it every yes. once in a while. Uh, when you first file, you have to renew after five or yep. six so years. So you have, you have, a, renew, you have a, a maintenance due at five years, which is technically not a renewal. It's its own unique thing. Yep. But you have to renew a trademark at, every, at 10 years and every 10 years thereafter, which is an assertion that you're continuing to use it. And, and it's the right proof that you're using it, right it proof. And the reason why they do this is so that marks don't stay when they're dead. Yeah. Because you look at it and say, the letters TSR, there's lots of things that could mean... And there are. If you look, there's a ton of other TSR yeah. marks that have nothing to do with... with RPGs. Yeah. yeah, and so it's the idea is that they want to clear stuff off if they can clear stuff off, so that people don't have a problem in conjunction with you know I want to register a mark, but there's this old mark that's not in use yeah. anymore. So that's why they have these maintenance sort of windows. So huge numbers of marks are abandoned effectively every year because people don't file for their maintenance. Usually because they're not using them anymore. Usually the companies are gone, so they just let them go. So uh, th this should have been the end of it. Um, TSR's marks were abandoned after Wizards of the Coast stopped using them. They couldn't provide the proof of use. They weren't, they weren't using, using them. It. They were not in use. So, therefore, the yeah. registrations are, can are canceled. So now we can say not only are the registrations gone, the state law marks are also gone. They're not actually using the trademarks anymore, and the rights have been abandoned. And there is some right in the ability to actually maintain a trademark. Um, excusable non-use, yeah. What's called excusable non-use, but we're not going to get into that yeah. because it's really not relevant for this. Yeah, we've already got a lot of material here. Okay, so like I said, that should have been the end of this. But, <laughs> and I should say, everything that follows, uh, we've done some research based on either trademark office records, Secretary of State records, or what I call hasty amateur Google research. <laughs> so uh, some of this is, is the words of people that we're going to talk about, and some is just what we can divine or infer from things that have been posted. But I just want to say, everything that follows, other than the trademark stuff, is essentially uh, hy hypothesis and speculation, so we can try and talk about the IP issues we don't really know what happened for a lot of these things, uh, so we're not we're not claiming that we do. We have no inside knowledge or anything else that's not public. Um, uh, so it also means this is a fantastic opportunity for a well actually person to correct us if we're wrong. Yeah. Okay. So everything was 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 dead and over with until in 2011 the TSR word mark was being used again uh, by a company called Hexagonist Publishing, which we think was founded by a guy named Jason Elliott. Um, Elliot uh, founded this company and filed a registration on the TSR mark, um, and then he also started a company called TSR Inc., which we're going to call TSR 2.0, uh, and started to have uh, that company use the TSR registration that was owned by his other company, Hexagonist Publishing. So that right there can cause some problems. Well, first off, let's just point out, this is common. It's common that you have yeah. a mark which comes abandoned for lack of use, being reused by somebody else in the future. Yep. So there's nothing nefarious or anything yeah. about Indian Motorcycle did that. Indian Motorcycle yeah. got sold off and somebody recollected the, the IP as best they could yep. and relaunched it. It's a new trademark with the same name, new rights, new IP. Yeah. This is totally acceptable. There's nothing nefarious about doing this. And no. that's one of the things to sort of start off with, you know, in conjunction with it. It happens all the time. People yep. don't necessarily realize it. Um, but yeah, so he basically founds this company, does it. One of the things I think we, to point out is that their goods and services are a little bit different. Um, at this point in time, because it's originally TSR is for games, for printed publications, for gaming material, stuff like that. Um, it appears that this is even more, if I'm right, from what you're telling me beforehand about this, um, it's more for podcasting, for sort of it's game supporting like materials. Yeah, so his, uh, I'm trying to find the goods idea here because we looked this up. It was a uh, publishing of paper and electronic books, namely game manuals, rule books, magazines, and newsletters related to games and gaming. Now, I don't know yeah. if they actually publish any games or not. Um, but they definitely had like a podcast and some other things they were doing talking about uh, RPGs. Well, TSR had a magazine. Didn't TSR publish Dungeon? There was, there was a Dungeon magazine and a Dragon magazine. Yeah. I, I think they published one, but not the other, maybe? maybe? I, I don't remember. The, yeah, I think so, I mean, again, we're talking basically overlapping goods, but not quite yeah. the same. But in any event, you know, TSR 1 is gone and not using it. So this is all fine. Jason's not doing anything wrong. 
Uh, so under TSR 2.0 with Jason, Elliot also co-found something called Gygax Magazine in 2013. So setting aside the TSR dispute, there's a whole separate dispute that erupts over Gygax Magazine. Uh, Gygax Magazine was founded with Luke and Ernie Gygax, who are the sons of Gary Gygax, one of the founders of uh, the original TSR. Uh, Elliot had wanted people who were involved in D&D from the beginning to be involved, uh, and he also brought in a guy named Tim Cask, who worked for TSR1 and was an editor, oh, it says right here, of Dragon Magazine. Dragon Magazine, there, there it is, Dragon. Um, so, Gygax Magazine launches in 2013. Shortly after that, a second trademark dispute arises over the use of the mark Gygax. This time between TSR 2.0, which includes Ernie and Luke Gygax, uh, and this Jason Elliott fellow. Uh, the other side of the dispute was Gail Gygax, Gary's second wife. Uh, Gary's first wife was Ernie and Luke's mother. So she would be, I guess, their stepmother, right? Mother. Yeah. Um, and I think Gary had divorced uh, Luke and Ernie's mother. I mean, my name's all confusing. Gary had divorced uh, Luke and Ernie's mother. Um, early on, and, and then had subsequently married Gail, who uh, he was still married to when Gary died in, I think, 2008. Yep. And so. now suddenly we seem to have a Disney animated... No, wait, we're not going to yeah. <laughs> So anyway, uh, Gail applies for a trademark in the name Gygax. TSR 2.0 also applies for uh, a trademark on Gygax. We have a, a sprint to the trademark office. Uh, yep. Gail won. Um, Gail filed for a number of trademarks. Uh, TSR just filed for two in the magazine industry. And this is where the details get sketchy. Um, we've seen in blogs that Gail apparently filed a lawsuit against TSR2 over the use of Gygax, but we can't find that lawsuit. Uh, and it may be that the term is being used colloquially, because we've seen people say file a lawsuit when they really mean oppose a trademark registration or yeah. something like that. Yeah, there's also a possibility that something that we, we didn't look in the right jurisdiction. I mean, there's lots yeah. of jurisdictions to search for when is possibly of not finding things. Yeah, and entirely possible. At any event, what we do know is that Gail and TSR2 reached a settlement as to the use of the Gygax trademark, which uh, apparently involves a licensing agreement. Uh, we don't know the details of that. Uh, we don't even know if that's actually what happened. This is just what we've seen reported. But what is notable is that uh, Ernie and Luke refuse to be part of the settlement, again, allegedly. Um, so, um, you know, Gail settles with a TSR2. Ernie and Luke are not part of it, and we think that they parted ways with TSR2 at that point. Shortly after that, uh, Jason Elliott with TSR2 decided to discontinue Gygax magazine. Uh, I think because he felt it was inappropriate to keep using the Gygax name after Ernie and Luke were no longer in, uh, involved, regardless of the, of the, the, you know, the consent from Gail. Um, but this is where there's our first interesting question here. Um, Ernie and Luke's last name is what, Kirk? It's Gygax. So why can't they use the mark? <laughs> so we're going to get into the interesting issue of one right to publicity and the idea of trademarks in a name. Yes. <laughs> it used to be that you had the absolute right to use your name as your brand, but that is no longer the rule, thanks to a nefarious individual named Larry Flint. Now, for those of you who don't know who Larry Flint is, that would be Hustler Magazine. Hustler Magazine. And we're talking about pornography here. Yeah. Uh, That's what it is. Now, Larry Flint, obviously, uh, go watch the movie about him. He's a fascinating character, if you don't know anything about him. I'll add that to the show notes. Um, yeah, there is a, there's a number of you know, movies and things sort of about him and his history, what it, what, it, what it is. Larry Flint was a very strong advocate in conjunction with freed speech. He testified, uh, didn't he? Was he in, like, yeah. uh, congressional hearings? And yeah, like that? I, I believe he's the one that's famous for the quote, which is the, um, if you'll let me speak, they'll let anyone speak, which is why I'm the perfect representative for why yeah. the person <laughs> needs to be doing this. Um, and so, you know, essentially he, he made a, a career out of being offensive, for lack of a better way of yeah. putting it. Um, but in, in IP law, he's actually a very important individual. Um, he fought strongly for a lot of rights associated with copyright. 
he did fight quite a bit around about trademark rights. Um, and, and free speech as well. And free speech. And also he fought around, a, a lot around rights associated with right of publicity. Not so much him, but after his death, um, in conjunction with his name, um, and it's associated with station with adult entertainment. Well, so Larry, Larry and his brother Jimmy had a dispute over the use of the Flint name. Uh, and this, this isn't the first time that the court changed this rule that you can always use your name, but it is one of the more famous cases. It's considered kind of a seminal case in this area. And, and the, the, the takeaway from the case is that if there's a likelihood of confusion about source or origin, just like with any other trademark matter, it doesn't matter if it's your name. The question is, who's it going to be associated with? And applying that to the, to the Gygax mark, Kirk, if I say Gygax, who do you think of first? You think of Gary you think Gygax. Of Gary, of course you do. Particularly in role-playing games, and particularly with conjunction with Dungeons and Dragons. Because it's, he, at least from those of us who I think played in the 80s and were involved in the 80s, his name is so associated with it. And it's, one, it's, it's hard it's to almost synonymous why it is. With it, yeah. It's almost synonymous with it. One is, I know he did write a number of the books, and he wrote some novels and stuff like that as well. I think they may have even used his name, like Gary Gygax. I think there was like a Gygax things. magazine back in the day, too. Yeah, uh, well, actually, people let us know. Um, but yeah, so we, we definitely have that sort of association with it being with his father. Yes. Not with Ernie, and not with uh, Gail. and Or with Gail. Yeah. yeah, so not with Ernie, not with Luke, and not with Gail, who all, by action of law, also have the guy Yak's name. So now we have an interesting problem. If it's associated with Gary, we have a complication. Gary's deceased. <laughs> Gary's deceased. So now the question is, who has the rights to Gary's estate? Who inherited the rights to manage references to Gary? Yep. Because um, your, your right to your name, your right to publicity in your name is going to pass as your part of your estate. This is one of those sort of established things yeah. that's out there. It and is a right that you can pass as your Typically, estate. your surviving spouse gets some of your estate, and your children do. Not necessarily in that order. Yep. So this is where we have another complication here, uh, and we don't have all the details because Gary apparently had two wills. And we know this because Gail was sued by Tom DeSanto, who's a Hollywood producer involved with the X-Men film, uh, Transformers. He sued Gail uh, relatively recently for breach of contract, alleging that she had allowed him to use IP related to Gary and the Gygax trademarks, and that Gail had breached those contracts. And in the lawsuit, DeSanto alleges that there were two wills written by Gary, and that the second one grants Gail the rights to Gary's IP, but only what we call a life estate. So, Kurt, okay. life estate. So we this are is the stuff that terrible yeah. movies about remote descendants of royalty are made from. <laughs> we, are, we are not trust in estates, lawyers. No, but is... what we are getting into is a trust in estates law school question, or bar exam. Oh my gosh, this is law school property law, first year. <laughs> I'm having flashbacks. So, what we have with this is a life estate is essentially a grant of rights to something while the person is alive. So the idea behind a, a life well, estate... Well, Gail is alive. Yeah, the, yeah. the person is alive that it's granted to. So the idea behind the life estate, and it's I know just from, you know, working with trusted estates, attorneys, yeah. and, and I think, you know... It's a term every lawyer knows. Place, everybody, life estates are actually much more common than people think they yeah. are. The idea behind it is, hey, if you have two people, let's say you have two people with no children, they are living in a home, they each have a, a set up in their, their estate plans, a life estate, so that the other person, regardless of who owns the home, the surviving spouse owns the home when the deceased spouse dies. Well, after the surviving spouse dies, what do you do with the home? Nobody wants it at that point. There's nobody to live in it. So then you say at the end of that person's life, we're going to take it, we're going to do something with it. We're going to donate it to charity, it's going to be sold, whatever it may be. And you can so, also impose a lot of conditions on life estates. Yeah, so they're not always transferable, things like that. You'll sometimes see like in suburban areas, like some random farm that's just still sitting there, probably because the kids inherited a life estate from the parents and they can't actually sell it until all the kids are gone. That is a common one. So like, there's a lot of limitations on life estates where it's like you're not allowed to sell something during your life. It's only sold after your death. Yep. And again, the idea behind this a lot of times is to care for kids. 
a lot of times life estates get used because it's somebody who they, you know, they literally have the spoiled rich kid who yeah. can't take care of themselves. I'm going to give them a life estate. So we do this more with trusts up. now than, than yeah. with, with property and life estates. And life estates are, are, are pretty disfavored in the law because they create so many problems and complications and difficulties. Uh, and there's also a thing in law school called the rule against perpetuities. It has to do with life estates. <laughs> if you ever want to, so those of you who are not lawyers, if you ever want to uh, terrify a lawyer, like if you meet like a, someone, <laughs> just say, hey, I've got a question about the rule against perpetuities. Watch their face turn ashen as they drop their cocktail, turn and run every time. <laughs> it's because of the fact that we all remember that from law school. It's the only math you have to do. <laughs> uh, yeah, and so the, the real key thing about this here is, is that a life estate basically says, Assuming it is a life estate, and again, we're... we're Gail disputes that. She claims yeah. it's not a life estate, although she does not apparently deny that the will exists. The real key question we have here is, is who owns the rights with it? If it is a life estate, Gail owns them. Yeah. If it's not a life estate, Gail presumably still owns them. Yeah. If there's a will, Just a matter for how long she can control them. Yes. Like, after she dies, does it go to... I don't know if she has her own separate kids or whatever, but... So there's maybe a whole other podcast episode after Gail Gygax passes away that we may have to do. To <laughs> but the real key issues. about this is, regardless of what the thing is behind these two wills and stuff like that, it would appear that Gail, at least currently, has control, owns the right? rights yeah. to, Gail, to, to the name Gary Gygax. Which is probably why she had the leverage to get TSR2 to back down and Ernie and Luke had to step away. So yeah. whatever, whatever they're going to inherit from Gary's estate, they haven't yet. It's apparently still under Gail's yeah. control. My guess is that the wills say that the kids get everything, but while Gail's alive, she can monetize all this stuff to take care yeah. of herself. That's a That's, pretty, that would typical be my guess as to what yeah. it is as well. That you have the, and that may be why the kids are so interested in this, is because they may be walking away because a settlement would be something they wouldn't necessarily be able to refute after they got control. That can be some of the issues. But again, we're speculating here wildly as yep. to whatever it is. I think the key thing to keep in mind about this is we probably do have a legitimate settlement here with Gail Guy Probably. That probably is enforceable. She probably does have some rights with yeah. injection with the estate. People would associate Guy Gax with the estate. She controls the estate for the time being. So okay, yeah. she gets no to call the shots. She, yeah. she also got to the trademark office first, so she has that little extra, extra bit of leverage <laughs> over them as well. So at any rate, uh, so that's how we think that shakes out. Um, and and then, the magazine also ceases. Yeah, the magazine stops running because with, with Luke and uh, uh, Ernie no longer involved, uh, Jason Elliott and TSR 2.0 didn't really want to continue to use the name anyway with or without the license agreement with Gail. And that that really ended the drama over the Gygax trademarks. TSR 2.0 continued to use the TSR trademarks and the stuff they were doing. And peace reigned on Earth. That really <laughs> should have been the end, end of this. Except... Except for some reason, the registration of TSR 2.0 lapsed in 2019 because it wasn't renewed. And we, we assume this is inadvertent. This kind of thing happens from time to time. But unlike a lot of things in IP law where you can't always just file late and just pay a lot of money to fix it, you can't do that with trademark renewals. Once you pass the grace period, it's just gone. So after that mark lapsed, a guy named Justin Lanassa... Let's talk about Justin Well, let's just, before you do that, the reason it probably lapsed, that it's around the, this is likely the window of the five-year renewal... Uh, so again, you have to state that a mark is in continued yes. use at five years, provide a specimen. He got registered in 2013, so 2018 would have been five years. The grace period would have run in 2019. So yep, that's the basic thing that we have. The other thing that's interesting about it, one thing to keep in mind, we're not going to really go into this, had it have been renewed, it would become what's called incontestable, which yes. actually makes it harder to challenge. Yes. But a key about it here is it was not renewed. It was not <laughs> renewed. Not only not, not rendered incontestable, but not renewed. So then um, a fellow named uh, Justin Lanassa files another trademark registration for the TSR mark in 2019, or no, 2020, I think. Uh, but he didn't file on the word mark. He filed a different trademark application on one of the TSR designs from back in the 80s. Uh, and he also started TSR 3.0, TSR LLC, as opposed to Inc. <laughs> TSR 2.0 is still around, and to our knowledge, still using the TSR mark on what they're doing. 
Then we have TSR 3.0, and he files intent to use a tacit admission that he's not actually using the trademark yet. It is, it isn't arguably an admission that is not necessarily being in use. Now, sometimes intent to use marks are filed on marks which are in use. Yeah. Because simply the specimen cannot be located yeah. and the mark needs to be filed. There might be right practical right. reasons why not. Um, so when you do it, you have to file what's called a statement of use on an intent to use mark. When you submit the statement of use, you submit the specimen showing the mark in use in the, on the goods or services, and you specify the date it was used at least as early as. The key to an intent to use mark is that date does not need to be before the filing date. Yeah. If you file the mark as in use, and there's, for example, an issue with your specimen, you always have to assert that the specimen you're submitting is in use before the mark goes filed. Uh, because that's yep. the requirement. Is to be you can also use. switch back and forth. So if you file yep. as in use and you can't get a specimen pulled together that the, that the trademark office will accept under its regulations, then you can amend to intend to use, produce a new specimen, and then submit that, and then it all goes forward. And the specimen issue is one, just to talk about real quickly about it. This is, when we talk about specimens, what that means, and sometimes referred to as an example of yeah. use as well. It's proof, basically. It's proof evidence. where the, the, the trademark office requires you to submit typically a photograph of your goods or services showing that the mark is actually on the goods or services is being used in conjunction with them. And they use this because they want to make sure you're actually treating it as a trademark. Yep. Um, so these are very important filings. And again, this was what was not filed in, you know, by TSR 2.0. Yeah. They did not file the, the statement of continued use. Um, you have a mark being filed as intent to use, which means it's filed with no statement of use. Yep. And no proof of use. No proof of use. <laughs> yep. Okay, so uh, so they filed that uh, Ernie Gygax is apparently involved in some capacity with TSR and this Lanasa. Uh, TSR 3.0. 3.0, yeah. TSR 3.0. Uh, on the design, again, not the word, although the design does include the letters TSR. It does ever include other words. But other well. words as well. I think it has, uh, we've got a copy of it here. It includes uh, the Game Wizards, the really, the really old one. Yep. Uh, so this Lanasa guy, uh, we don't know who he is or how Ernie knows him, uh, but his web, his personal website says that he is a tattoo artist, weapons designer, and politician, and it looks like he ran for uh, state senate in North Carolina in 2014 uh, and state uh, state house in uh, 2020. So we don't know exactly how they they hooked up together, but uh, but anyway, Ernie's involved with that. Luke has dropped out of the scene entirely, as far as we know. And so TSR 3.0 now, with Ernie being there instead of with 2.0, is, uh, is, has the registration. But from what we can gather, this wasn't a problem. Uh, TSR 3.0 engaged in something called a quote-unquote lease, uh, which was really a license in technical terms, back to TSR 2 to continue to use the mark in connection with what they were doing. So this presents another question. Kirk, can you do that in the abstract? Can you have two different people use the same mark and just agree to coexist? Yes. But yeah, so you, what you have in conjunction with this is you have the idea that you can't get a mark which is confusingly similar. So the real question with it is here is, are these marks confusingly similar? Now, that's ultimately a question for a court. Mm -hmm. that, that a court would decide if they're confusingly similar. The trademark office will reject trademarks if they think they're likely to be confusingly similar. Now, you can dispute that. You can obviously fight them and say, no, they're not. Here's why. Oftentimes, because the goods or services are different or the marks are different. Keep in mind the marks here are different. different. One's a logo, includes additional words. One is just the letters TSR, um, with no claim as to font or appearance. So there's an argument they could be considered not confusingly similar to begin with. Mm -hmm. Even if they're found confusingly similar, one of the things that you can do is you can go to the owner of the other mark, and the two of you can agree amongst yourselves, no, 
we actually don't think we're confusingly similar because, hey, while we're in the same class of goods or services, what you sell is totally different from me. Or, hey, we both have logos and yours looks totally different from mine. We have different consumers. You're business to business. I'm business yep. to consumer. These kind of things happen all the time. It's a pretty common thing that happens in, in trademark prosecution really throughout the world yep. where you have a, a, what, what the trademark offices think is a conflicting mark, but the people who actually own the respective rights don't agree. Yeah, they so, don't think it's a conflicting mark. And again, part of it's just because they're saying we think it could be found by a court, but the parties who basically have the rights are looking at it going, yeah, but we would not actually disagree. So it would never go to a court, so they'd never say it was. Yeah. And so you, you agree to what's called coexistence at that yeah. point in time. Coexistence it's agreements. A contract. Yeah, it's a contract. Typically they say something along the lines of like, you can, so if it's two logos, maybe you're only allowed to use it in your logo form. I'm yep. only allowed to use it in my logo form. We agree to stay in our lanes. I won't yep. move into your goods. You won't move into my goods. You can kind of carve out the market. Yep. Who's going to operate where? You can even carve out states. So it's yep. something where it's, hey, we're going to operate in certain states. This other party's going to operate in different states. You know, you can have all these different kinds of carve outs. But the idea is basically saying, if we agree that this is not going to cause us problems, why should the yeah. trademark office not grant us both marks? Because the whole concern is it's going to cause us problems. So it's not clear here if there was a true license or lease where TSR3 actually licensed the mark back to TSR2 or whether they agreed to a coexistence agreement. I think coexistence agreement, I think, is what they should have done. Uh, maybe it's what they meant to do is to say we can both cooperate in this space. But when they say lease, it almost sounds like a license. But that, that, that alone is strange because TSR 2.0, if they're still using the mark, they still have their state common law rights, even if they lost the registration. Correct. So I don't know if maybe they gave those up or that was part of a resolution of this or whatever. This is also a place where it's very likely that simply the third-party sources we're reading online we don't have, details, have the correct right, information. Yeah. And it's very, you know, these kind of things are oftentimes not recorded with the trademark office, especially in this case because you don't actually have a conflict between the two marks at the trademark office. Yeah. There's no indication of there being a conflict and that that conflict being settled. Everything about this is going to be private. You yep. know, we have no way of knowing what these two parties have agreed to at all. So we're simply relying upon what third parties are saying. They may have no agreement whatsoever. They may just be both existing yeah. as it is. You know, they may become aware of each other because of our podcast, for all we know. Yeah. You know, I mean. <laughs> well, apparently they were asked about this. And Elliot had said that they're, that they're not paying anything to use the mark. Ernie thought that they might be. He wasn't 100% sure, I don't think. So um, the details of whatever this agreement is don't, don't appear to be all that well hashed out. Um, but uh, the, the bottom line is uh, these two were, for a time, after this registration in 2020, coexisting peacefully. There didn't seem to be any big dispute or any real problem uh, or any, or any uh, uh, issues. So uh, peace reigned on Earth, and that should have been the end of this. So anyway, yeah, 2019, that should have been the end of it. Except last month, Twitter drama happened. Um, and that's what spurred us to talk about this That's topic. what got us talking about this and what got Chris and Ed reaching out to us. So apparently Ernie Gygax had made some remarks, and I haven't, I, I think they're on a YouTube video, I haven't actually watched it, but Ernie made remarks about some, some currently very sensitive topics, race, gender identity, uh, gun violence, uh, and I think he also criticized Wizards of the Coast for um, addressing racism in some of their properties or the D&D properties. Yep. So let's jump um, back to what it is, and I just know from what it was, Wizards of the Coast owned the original GSR, remember they bought them? They allowed TSR 1.0, the marks to expire. Wizards of the Coast did react. They removed some magic cards in June 2020 in response to current events. I have the feeling that there may be associations with that. That, that it's, it's key to keep in mind that Wizards of the Coast is also involved in this as yeah. an old owner of TSR marks. Yep. There's also apparently some, some remarks about uh, 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 transsexualism, uh, transphobia, that sort of thing. And uh, TSR 3 stepped in and defended Ernie's remarks. 
Ernie, I think, um, I get the impression under some Twitter pressure, decided he needed to apologize for what he said. Uh, and so he issued an apology in which he also recounted his personal history of being bullied and made remarks that uh, I would describe as Columbine-esque, uh, which also, I think, uh, uh, rubbed people the wrong way. Um, I, haven't, I haven't looked at any, any of this stuff. I don't know exactly what he said. I don't want to quote him or misrepresent it. So we'll try and find the original remarks so you all can read them and judge for yourself. Uh, we're here to discuss the IP issues and not, not get into any kind of social commentary. But uh, in response to Ernie's comments, uh, TSR2 stopped using the TSR trademark. They were either licensing or coexisting with TSR3 on, uh, and then uh, rebranded to, I think, Solarian it's called now, although it's not clear if they're changing the, the name of the company. And as far as I know, that's where it's sure. it finally ended. Well, let's give one just one final point in that it is common that the name of a company and the trademark under which they're doing business are not the same. Yeah, that's actually a very common thing, um, you know, as to what it is. You you commonly see it just because of the fact that you know you see McDonald's as McDonald's company, you mm -hmm. know, with McDonald's being the name of the restaurant as well. But there is no requirement. There are plenty of yeah. companies out there where you never see the company name. And a lot of times the company names are weird collections of letters. Yeah. You know, they're just something that's almost a placeholder that sticks. And they rely upon the brand name and then they rely upon the trademark for the goods and services for the products they provide. It's very common in services. Yeah. Because obviously when you talk about a service mark and I'm providing a service, it's something where I can brand the building with whatever I'm branding it, even if that's not the company's name. You see that a lot with franchises too. Like your local McDonald's restaurant is almost certainly owned by a franchisee, not yeah. by McDonald's corporate. And that person's going to have a state company that's probably, you know, uh, Kirk, you know, KD Holdings LLC, yeah. which is the franchisee for McDonald's when they're licensing the marks from McDonald's as IP arm. So, um, you know, it's, it's like Kirk said, it's not at all unusual for that to happen. So that's that's where things land. So I think, you know, where we are right now is that TSR3 seems to have the sole and exclusive claims to use the TSR trademarks now. At least to this logo. At least to this logo. Well, they registered some other logos, too, yeah. but they've kind of gathered up and collected all of the old TSR marks and re-registered them. We think Gail Gygax controls all of the Gygax trademarks at this point, at least for the rest of her life. Um, we'll, you know, we don't know how that's going to play out. Uh, TSR2 is still around and changing its brand, we guess, to Solarian. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and, and doesn't seem to be wanting to use this at all anymore. And of course, TSR1 is gone. And I think Wizards of the Coast is probably glad to not be involved. At this yeah, point. Wizards of the Coast is now, you know, they got brought into this, I think, a little bit at the end. But really, from the IP issues, Wizards of the Coast is not involved at all in this. Yeah. Yeah, Wizards of the Coast has its Wizards of the Coast marks. So, one, one sort of postscript on this, you know, when sensitive topics like you know, political issues, uh, things like that, uh, come up, we sometimes see IP dragged into it, uh, usually kicking and screaming, uh, usually as an ancillary point. And, and Kurt, what I often see is, is it's being weaponized to cast aspersions on one side or the other, usually along the lines of, well, so-and-so is a bad person because he or she did all these terrible things. Oh, and by the way, he also stole this IP from somebody. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, we see that in elections sometimes where this happens every election cycle. Some political candidate somewhere will play a song at a rally that some the songwriters that they don't have rights to. Yeah, and, and, politicians perpetually screw up and don't get rights to the noise to get their political rallies. Yeah, the, so then the songwriters complain and want it taken down. Um, you know, th these these performance rights are usually licensed through a PRO collective. Um, if you've done your 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 uh, licensing correctly, you have the right to do it, and the the composers generally can't stop you. Although I think for political campaigns, there, there might be some, some now. Yeah, yeah, there's been there's been some limitations that have been imposed on the fact that you. You can specify certain, I think, political causes you don't yep. want certain songs to be licensed to now, I believe is a loud thing. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll, what we often see here is that uh, people misconstrue how IP rights work. Uh, you know, generally, I'm not, I'm not trying to criticize anybody, this is just human psychology. 
generally you misconstrue it to match the narrative that, that you think <laughs> is correct, right? Uh, but the interesting thing is IP rights don't really care who's right or wrong. They just exist. Yeah. And we saw that in the Google v. Oracle case where the court took pains to say copyright's not concerned with who is the good actor or the bad actor. It's just concerned with whether you created something or not. And that's, I think, the one thing that I think is really important in this case is it's, when we look at this, we can say this is a hotly disputed issue. This does a Twitter blow up, you know, stuff like that. The IP issues on this don't actually seem that confusing. Now, it incorporated a large amount of IP law, interestingly, yeah. during the course of this, and there are some still potential open issues, the trusted states questions, you know, sort of things like that. But, you know, the IP issues here are relatively clear-cut as to who owns what in the form of IP. But it is something that you have seen a lot recently of the IP, of IP being weaponized, and I like the comment where it gets drug in of, this is a bad person, and by the way, they stole IP as another way to show them as being yeah. a bad person. Um, Places we've seen it recently in conjunction with IP and the ownership of IP is music right now. Yes. I mean, there's a little question that sort of in a lot of disputes with Taylor Swift, with Britney Spears. You know, ownership of these estates. These are incredibly valuable IP portfolios, no question. Um, it's what they are. And they're very complicated IP portfolios mm -hmm. because like TSR, they're tied up in trademark. They're tied up in rights of publicity. They're tied up in copyright. You have all sorts of things with this. So as we, we saw today, as, as we have older artists, you know, we saw what the Lev Zeppelin case is, older artists die off and their kids inherit their estates. They're going out and being more aggressive about pursuing infringers. So I think we're going to see a lot more yep. of these types of disputes involving older IP bubbling up to the surface. And as we saw with this case, issues like estate planning are going to matter. What state did you die in is <laughs> going to matter. And we've seen that a little bit already, and it's I think part of it's also the, the length that states are lasting now. You know, Star Wars was not expected to be around, you know, when it was first generated for 40 years. You know, I mean, you know, that kind of thing sort of is to what it is. There's some of the early ones of these involve comic books. They involve Superman. They involve DC Comics. They involve Marvel Comics. You know, and again, it's the kids having issues in conjunction with these things where, hey, maybe they're pursuing something more aggressively. Part of it also is they may become aware of rights mm -hmm. that the original right holder didn't really know they had. Yep. You know, where they may have lost it. You also had a lot of times, and I think some of this is as well, if we're jumping back 50, 60 years ago, contracts may not have paid much, as much attention to these things as they should have. And we're less detailed yeah. in general. If you look at contracts that were written, I mean, I've seen contracts show up from the 70s and 80s that were typewritten and been photocopied a million times or missing pages yeah. and, and stuff like that. A lot of the kind of issues that come up now weren't covered back then. So there's more opportunity to, to make arguments that things uh, were or were not permitted. Yeah, you go back to a lot of contracts. You go back to like the early days of music. You know, you go back to you know, the 20s or 30s and evaluations of music um, and stuff like that, you have a lot of um, places where really you can easily have a contract that isn't got all the stuff it needs to for copyright yeah. law today, but the copyright is still enforced because it's good for 100 years plus the life of the author. Um, you know, those are things we, you just really got to keep in mind that we're seeing those kind of IP issues becoming more. And I think also it's somewhat becoming this idea that somehow stealing somebody's invention, stealing somebody's idea is becoming more of a bad actor. We're really seeing it in copyright. We're really yeah. seeing it in the sort of copyright piece, more so than patent. But I, I think it's we're seeing that type of thing like this, where Dungeons & Dragons now having a long tail, being an existing thing, becoming more important to down the road, who owns it? What we're really seeing here is not Dungeons & Dragons, we're seeing TSR. Yep. But we're seeing TSR pop up because of its association with Dungeons & Dragons. And what does that mean? Now again, if you started playing Dungeons & Dragons in the most recent edition three years ago, you probably never heard of TSR. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. You that's right. <laughs> and it's, we should also talk just briefly, and we're going to wrap it up. Um, 
the difference between the trademark on TSR and on Dungeons & Dragons, because the Dungeons & Dragons trademarks, I didn't look these up for this episode because those weren't being disputed, but those are presumably still out there. Uh, TSR would have had trademark rights in that name. That would have passed on to Wizards of the Coast. They're still using it. Those are still valid and now owned by Wizards of the Coast. Yeah. It's TSR as a publishing company for these games that, that, uh, that disappeared. And then one more thing I'm going to throw out to the, to the listeners here. Um, why is TSR's IP so hotly disputed, Kirk? This has been going on for our entire <laughs> lives. Um, so if any of you have any thoughts on why, why, if there's any reason why TSR in particular has been so subject to so much dispute, I'd be curious to know what your thoughts are I, on I that. think I am. Gonna, I'm going to give my speculation and conjecture at the end of the episode. I think part of it is because of the fact that TSR is a perfect example of IP which was created growing off of other IP. Yeah. You know, we talked about it in the initial TSR episodes, the, the stuff discussing, you know, our three parts. They had their own dispute with Tolkien's estate to start yeah. with, which gave us some of the nomenclature we have for, for the D&D property now. Yeah. And so I think what you really have is you have this being the sort of perfect example of this is something that was built off of something else, but was not done so in the formal way of like a motion picture coming off of a book. And it was Where, also the invention of a new type of property, yes. too, the, the tabletop role-playing game. Yeah, and that's we're seeing it in TSR, and the dispute over TSR because of the invention of the role-playing game. In the same way, and anybody listened to our last episode, we're seeing it in video games mm-hmm. and disputes in conjunction with things. But this was not an issue years ago because whether or not you could depict the football player's likeness in a video game yeah. was not something that mattered. And when you have <laughs> new, new, um, new types of services, new types of products, you know, you don't always have neat, clean existing law on how it works. Yeah. You haven't, you know, the, the, the kind of disputes that are going to come up haven't come up yet. So we don't know how to write the contracts yet. And, you know, this is where lawyers come in and, and try to anticipate things as best we can. But as you will see if you listen to our last TSR episode, no matter how you write that contract, clever people can game the system. It's the same thing with legislation. Once you write down what the rules are, it's easy to work around them. Again, video games, you yeah. know? How much time do you spend min-maxing video games to work around the rules and things like that? So, okay, so uh, so that's all we've got for that one. Um, if, if there's anything else about this that you all would like to hear about, let us know. We're happy to dig into this in more detail. We were, I don't know about you, Kirk, I was surprised at how straightforward the IP issues actually yeah. were. I think the IP issues here are actually relatively straightforward, and I think that that's, you know, our real goal in sort of this episode is to point out that these are, while there's a lot of IP episode issues here, they are relatively straightforward, they're relatively simple, so to speak, um, you know, in conjunction with it. The, the real thing about this is, is that we have seen this blow up, we've seen sort of the, the, the argument of this weaponization of it, um, but really what we've seen is that IP get drug into something because it's just not understood. Now people are seeing what does this mean being confused, trying to put out there and say it's not really as confusing necessarily as what it is, even if it is complicated. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. All right, so uh, for next episode, we're still working with schedules as we, we struggle to get back into the office and kind of get back to normal. Uh, we're, we are going to try to make an effort to get weekly content out for the rest of the year, even if that means I have to keep dumping rewind episodes on you until we can get together. But we do want to try and uh, keep the content coming regularly. We're going to shoot for Wednesdays. We're going to kind of resurrect last year's <laughs> last year's plan and try and make that happen to give you some midweek content uh, to, to, to listen to. Uh, also, uh, Kirk and I, who Kirk doesn't know this, we haven't talked about it yet, but we may try and also record some edamame episodes here and there just to sprinkle some extra stuff in and keep it coming while we're still uh, mostly apart. Yeah. Um, I know we do want to go over the the NCAA antitrust case at some point. That might be a better fit for an edamame episode, but we'll, we'll just have to see. Uh, in the meantime, please do check out our new and improved website, which, again, I will do a separate little short piece and tell you what's going on with that, uh, at lggpodcast.com. Just briefly, it has our entire episode catalog categorized by episode type, hashtags, word clouds, our recommendations, and you can leave comments. So please go do that. 
Uh, please also subscribe to the podcast. Again, our entire back catalog is available going back to 2017. We are hosted on SoundCloud and indexed on Apple Podcasts, but you can get us on anything that can take an RSS feed. We use and recommend Overcast. Do you use Overcast? I use Overcast. Yeah, we yeah. both use Overcast. Uh, but you can use whatever you want. Uh, if you like what you hear, give us a like or even a review. Uh, tell us how much you love our content, and then you can get in touch with us on Twitter at LGGpod or by email at LGGpodcast at gmail.com. Leave a comment on the website, LGGpodcast.com. Find me on Twitter at Benjamin Sider or find Kurt at Kurt DMN. That's all for today. We'll see you next time. Forum Play Us The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded in St. Louis, Missouri. 